Dear friends and AI enthusiasts, warm welcome from London. My name is Chamis Sultara, I'm the director of the Czech Center and co-president of EUNIC. You might ask yourself what is EUNIC. So EUNIC is an association of European culture institutes and embassies in the UK with the main aim to promote European culture and foster mutual collaboration with UK partners. In recent months, many of the institutes are expanding their programs and interests into new and uncharted territories of science and innovations. So I'm very pleased to lead and launch today a brand new Ionic Science Hub series, which throughout the year will present one of the most eminent phenomena of our time, the artificial intelligence. The AI algorithms will, and in some instances, already do significantly impact many human activities, spanning from art to business, from communication to personal security, medicine, mobility, and many others. As the AI is taking a grip on so many various sectors, the topics that we have decided to launch the series is unifying an overarching theme of ethics. The questions such as who will be the beneficiaries of AI? Will the AI benefit be distributed equally? Will the AI advancements further enlarge gaps among wealthy corporations and individuals and not the so fortunate ones? Will it further amplify the trans-societal stratifications? These and many other questions we have an ambition to tackle and discuss this evening is a very reputable panel of the distinguished experts in the field, and I love to stress all women, coming from three countries, the United Kingdom, Czech Republic, and Austria. So I'm sad to know that we had a last-minute cancellation by Janina Lowe. Nevertheless, I'm very pleased to introduce to you the chair of the panel, Dr. Erin Young, who is a postdoc fellow and co-leader of Women Data Science and AI program at the prestigious Alan Turing Institute. Erin holds a degree from the University of Oxford and Cambridge, also spent a research time at Stanford Universities, and been involved in some consulting engagement, among others, in UNESCO in Paris. So before I turn the floor to Erin, I'd like to thank and acknowledge the great support organizing the first AI Science Cafe, the Austrian Culture Forum, namely Claudia Alt, also the Czech Center. I'd like to ask for a brief welcome from the head of ACF, Valtro Denhard-Herzog. So Valtro, the floor is yours. Thank you, Prem. Thank you very much. We very much appreciate this cooperation as um, the Austrian Cultural Forum is not only focusing on classical cultural events, but we very much focus also on science diplomacy and on the question how to reach the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. So we are very um, thankful that Oinik has um, taken up this topic and we have this wonderful cooperation with you, Prem, who are very much experienced in the field already since you have been in America. Um, um, I also want to mention that we have, um, we have uh, my colleagues in, in San Francisco have done quite an interesting experiment with Daniel Kielman um, and an IE algorithm. And both of them, um, so Daniel Kielman is writing um, a piece of literature together with uh, an AE algorithm. Um, so this shows how classical culture 
can be combined with technology. And I think that's really one of the very interesting um, things which, which we will see later uh, in the future, uh, not only in the field of literature, but also in many other fields. So I hope I, our audience will have an interesting um, evening tonight. And of course, I would like to invite all of you to come to our institutions, to the Czech Center, to the Austrian Cultural Forum, as soon as it is possible again towards the end of May and later on. Enjoy your evening. Um, and I give the floor to Irene, who will introduce our speakers of tonight. Uh, or co-discussant co, co, uh, of tonight, Charlotte Six and Dita Melechkova. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me um, and welcome to everyone this evening. I hope you're all doing well. So um, I will first go through the structure of the evening um, and then I'll briefly introduce the topic of AI ethics, although Prem have already done a really great job. Um, and then I'll introduce the wonderful speakers we have lined up for you. So the structure of the evening will be, we'll hear from Dita and then we'll hear from Charlotte, and then we'll have a discussion um, between these speakers and myself, which I'll chair. And then I'll, we'll open up the floor to audience questions. So as you're listening, feel free to type any questions you have into the chat um, uh, we'll monitor these and please also do feel free to tweet about the event on social media channels um, as well we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts so to add to Prem's uh, fabulous introduction we're living through a remarkable time of technological change um, it's extremely exciting that we have an ever-expanding availability of big data coupled with massive advancements in the sophistication of machine learning systems. And this new digitally interconnected world is delivering rapid gains in the power of AI to make society better. Um, and innovations in AI are already dramatically changing a number of, a number of fields and sectors, um, as Prem mentioned, from healthcare to education to transport, right the way through to energy, food systems and environmental management. And this is only the start. Because the way in which AI systems work is that they improve organically with greater access to data and growth in computing power, they'll only become more effective and useful with time. And it might not even be that long before AI becomes a gatekeeper to the very advancement of vital public interests and public social good. And whilst this progress is obviously super exciting and can help humanity confront some of our biggest challenges, legitimate worries are still, of course, abound. And as with any new and rapidly evolving technology, a steep learning curve means that mistakes and miscalculations may be made and though anticipated harmful impacts might happen and indeed they're already happening and this is one of the things we look at um, in my project women in data science and ai at the turing so you might have seen in the last few years a number of examples in the media of ai bias so um, there was a very high profile example of a hiring algorithm developed by Amazon, which discriminated against female applicants. Um, and more recently, a social media chatbot 
had to be shut down when it began spewing racist hate speech. And, and unfortunately, these are two examples in a huge number um, of examples of AI bias, which we see across both the public sector and industry. But what is promising, it's not that depressing, is that the field of AI ethics has emerged as a response to this range of individual and societal harms. Um, that the misuse or poor design or negative unintended consequences of AI might cause. So in order to manage these negative impacts responsibly and moreover to direct the development of AI towards optimal public benefit and towards the public good, we as a society must make AI ethics a priority. And this is why I'm so excited that this is the topic, um, this inaugural meeting. This involves integrating considerations of the social and ethical implications of the design and implementation of AI into every stage across the design of AI. And of course, this includes alignment on what ethical values and principles we must consider. What do we, what do we think are important, both conceptually and practically? And we must do this in order to safeguard and promote the well-being of the global society. So this, this involves questions like, what does it mean for AI to be good? What does good actually mean? What do we want from AI? What are our desired outcomes? Uh, and as a response to the risks of AI, and I, and I think Charlotte will be talking about this, many organizations have launched various initiatives to establish ethical principles for the adoption of socially beneficial AI, which is very exciting. Um, Basically, in a nutshell, one of my colleagues at the Turing, uh, Dr. David Leslie, has written uh, what I think is a really great encapsulation definition of AI ethics. So he writes, AI ethics is a set of values, principles and techniques that employ widely accepted standards of right and wrong to guide moral conduct in the development and use of AI technologies. I mean, it's very simplified, but I think it, <laughs> I think it, it explains it quite well. And these values, principles, and techniques are intended both to motivate morally acceptable practices, as well as to prescribe the basic duties and obligations necessary to produce ethical, fair, accountable, transparent and safe AI systems. So I hope that was a, a very speedy and a thorough overview of, or not so thorough overview of AI ethics. Um, but now I will introduce our wonderful speakers we have for the evening. Um, so we'll be, start, we'll be hearing first from Dieter Malachkova, who studied philosophy and information science at Charles University of Prague and worked as a lecturer and researcher of contemporary philosophy, visual culture, arts and new media at the New Media Studies Department of the Faculty of Arts. She's interested in the artistic and experimental use of technology, especially AI, as well as the ethical implications of use. And then we'll be hearing from Charlotte Sticks, who is an experienced technology policy expert with a specialization in AI governance. She's currently pursuing a PhD at the Eindhoven University of Technology and serves as a fellow to the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. She researches the ethics and governance of AI. And most recently, Charlotte was the coordinator of the European Commission's high-level expert group on artificial intelligence. Um, I can't wait to hear what they both have to say. So without further ado, I will hand over to Dieter. 
Good evening and thanks for having me. I will uh, briefly introduce myself. And um, as Erin already told you, I uh, worked as a lecturer and a researcher at the New Media Studies for more than a decade. And I was, and I am still mainly interested in uh, New Media Art and uh, let's say the influence of technology and the New Media environment to the human thinking, imagination, and experiencing to the whole of a human sensorium. And I was also interested in the concept of post-human as expressed, for example, in uh, the work of uh, Anne Catherine Hales, um, and a theorist of new media, and many more, of course. And I like the concept of thought as a cognitive function, depending on the embodied form enacting it, but much broader. In a sense, she explains, for example, in her last book uh, titled uh, Antho, uh, which is about non-conscious cognitive processes and possibilities of interactions between human and uh, technical cognizers which is basically, um, simply speaking, a concept of cognition broader than consciousness, ergo the possibility of extension of mind. So very fascinating topic. And uh, in 2019, I started to cooperate with the machine learning expert Jan Till, and we created a project we call Digital Philosopher. Uh, for the students of uh, new media of Charles University in Prague. And it was quite a success. Uh, not only uh, we got some prizes, uh, AI award for uh, the idea of the year. We um, went to media, uh, Czech broadcasting station, even television. But uh, really the most important part for us was that the students really loved this project. And um, it was, um, uh, we, we actually allowed them uh, to create their uh, own digital versions of uh, chosen philosophers and generate text, uh, new text by them. Uh, we used uh, artificial intelligence or uh, neural network um, uh, GPT-2s by the initiative OpenAI. Uh, which was uh, before GPT-3s came to scene, uh, most uh, impressive or one of the most impressive uh, neural networks at the time, and I think still is, and it was accessible to public. So uh, students, they have their datasets, uh, books by their uh, philosophers, and uh, we provided them the philosophical context and uh, call-out notebooks. And uh, the the results were impressive. Not only students really love this way of working with philosophical texts, then, and then usually find them you know, difficult to abstract and boring. Uh, I would say that uh, actually this project represented an access to their attention, uh, but also the, the results, the output texts were uh, not as predictable as we thought at the beginning. Um, they were uh, smart, they were surprising, and uh, often somehow personal, like personal messages from dead philosophers, you know. So we really did have these moments of conversion. We started 
for a moment to believe that uh, we are witnessing a kind of new life of the books, of the text, maybe unintended, but somehow logical. Uh, if you take, for example, a uh, book Thousand Plateaus by French philosophers Deleuze and Guattari, uh, which is actually the book desperately seeking not to be a book, uh, you see that really there was a logic um, in, in using artificial intelligence or neural network. And we somehow uh, experienced moments of uh, uh, see, maybe we can say the ghost in a machine. And, uh, but I have to say, and uh, we are coming uh, closer to the ethical issues, that uh, by the time uh, the new generation of these neural networks, GPT-3s, came, I went uh, deeper to the reality of machine learning, uh, trying to understand the principles of it. And I naturally started to think about political and economical wider framework of this technology. I started to read uh, Shoshana Zubov, uh, follow uh, Timnit Gebru and the other researchers exploring cognitive and behavior biases and ethical issues, the, the depths behind the image of artificial intelligence. And it put me to the state of uh, uncertainty. On one side, I was and I am still amazed by the results and the possibilities of AI. Uh, for example, in a moment, I'm writing a book it's a fiction and there is a character which is partly artificial and the neural network allowed me to create a living version of her and speak to her consult the text with her and her or me because she's partly the digital copy of myself as my texts are part of her input uh, is uh, talking to me so you can see there is a, this um, uh, feedback system the situation that I find amazing, uh, and I have to admit, I, I love it. But uh, on the other side, I cannot overlook the dangers AI brings, the manipulation with global population uh, that Shoshana Zubov describes as the proceedings of surveillance capitalism. So uh, to conclude this brief uh, introduction, I would say that AI, artificial intelligence, is truly an obscure object of desire and I'm trying to examine it as such. Thank you so much, Dieter. That was brilliant. Um, so now I'll pass, I'll hand over to Charlotte for her plenary introduction. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's really exciting to be here and to have an opportunity to discuss this topic, which I, as many of the fellow panelists and chairs have, you know, spent a long time working on, and it is a really difficult topic. And I think it's important to have, you know, public discourse and get a lot of different expertises and opinions on these issues. So I think the best way for me to give you an overview of what I'm working on, um, which is AI governance, which I've spent half a decade now on doing, um, both at the European Commission, at industry, at Element AI, and in academia, is to give you a sort of summary of the sort of ethical issues that are the main clusters that policymakers and industry and other actors in the space are currently concerning themselves with. So the first one would be human agency and oversight. So of course, we as humans, we don't want to be nudged, we don't want to be manipulated, 
And we want to be sure that the AI system doesn't run out of control, so to speak. We want to make sure that the AI system fosters fundamental rights, follows what it should be doing, and you know that there is no lack of oversight, so to speak. So in that space, you have a lot of discussion about human in command or human in the loop sort of approaches. So to have a human in control of the AI system and not vice versa. The second topic is technical robustness and safety and accuracy. We want the AI systems that we deploy in the ecosystem to work as expected. We don't want them to fall prey to attacks. We don't want there to be security errors. And we ultimately don't want them to harm us, not only physically, but I think particularly with AI, psychologically, we don't want to be manipulated in our choice of um, politics. We don't want to be manipulated in our choice of you know, what show to watch on Netflix. We want the system to help us. We don't want it to herd us into a specific space that can become increasingly more dangerous. Of course, privacy and data governance, that sort of goes hand in hand with diversity, non-discrimination. We want these AI systems to adhere to our societal standards and you know, ideally actually be better than us. We don't want them to exacerbate historic bias. We want them to actually make sure that everyone is treated equally and that you know, the people that are currently disadvantaged don't continuously aren't continuously disadvantaged through these AI systems, but just now it's hidden behind the machine. So you have this huge space of data governance, um, non-discrimination, bias, fairness. And then you have the last space, which is broadly something along the lines of societal and environmental well-being. Because all of these AI systems ultimately not only reflect our values or not, and that I think Aaron has pointed to that very well in the introduction, um, but they also shape our values, they shape our society, and they really have, they have a lot of impact on the choices we make. They create sticky path dependencies for the sort of things that we let out into society, for its environmental impact, and for what society may look like in the future. Those impacts, as all of these other very high-level points I've managed, um, they can be positive and they can be negative, right? So what we want to do in AI governance, ideally, is to avoid the negative and encourage the positive. So what is AI governance? That's actually a really hard question, which again, I will just touch upon because I want to hear more of your ideas and your questions um, later on. So AI governance is basically the attempt to find norms and frameworks and methods that we as a society can establish to create a good framework for artificial intelligence to be beneficial to us and to future generations. And that's actually really, really hard. That's hard because of a couple of reasons. That's hard because AI is a lot of different things. AI is an omni-use technology, I've heard people say, and I find that very Act. Artificial intelligence can be applied in almost any sector, in almost any level. So you could, well, you have it in your phone, the government can deploy it, big companies can deploy it. It is something that can truly 
encompass ourselves and society. So it's really hard to govern something that is akin to almost fire or electricity that can be everywhere and can show up in completely different versions, basically. So that's the first thing that makes AI governance really, really hard, because you have to specify what are you even talking about in all of these sectors, on all of these levels? Are you speaking of the macro level, the micro level, individual, societal, or even environmental level? The second thing that makes AI governance really, really hard, but also really, really worthwhile and really, really exciting, um, is that there are a lot of different actors that are involved and that need to be involved. So AI governance may sound like it is quote unquote, just governments working on this, which to a degree is true, but as we've you know, just heard, AI and AI governance is a lot more. It is about the technical community. It is about the ethical community. It's about the legal community. It's about civil society voicing their opinions, what they're worried about, their needs. It's about the sort of institutions we build and it's about what we finance as a society, right? We are making choices, even with that last decision. If I spend a lot of money on an AI project, then it's likely to become more mainstream. So I really need to think about whether that is something society needs and whether that is something that in the future can have massive downstream negative effects. So this interplay between the different elements of AI or the different application areas that are manifold and the various actors that are involved, that need to be involved, that should be cooperating, collaborating, on top of, you know, artificial intelligence is not a technology that obviously stays within a country. You have artificial intelligence, it doesn't respect borders. It is truly a global technology. So you add the political dimensions and you add the geopolitical dimensions on top of that, and you see that the idea of governing this technology or coming up with frameworks that not only a company or one government, but almost we as a society can agree on is actually really hard. So there is a lot of research that has come out in the past couple of years. And in order to give you a good oversight, I'll be touching on some of those things now. So you have a sense of what's going on in the space and what are efforts at manifold levels, what are different actors doing? So I think the first thing to mention is efforts at industry level. Obviously, industry are usually with academia, the ones that actually develop these AI systems, right? So government might be governing them and regulating them or standardizing them, but industry actually is a first mover in that space. So with that comes a great responsibility because you ultimately will be the first actor that actually sees what the system is capable of, how accurate it is, what sort of failure modes it has if things go wrong. And also maybe your system can be used in this one sector and that's what it's intended to be used for, but it could be reapplied to so many different other areas. And you have some responsibility of thinking those through. So for example, deep fake technology, where you can not only superimpose very lifelike images of someone on videos, on photos, 
pretending that, for example, a political figure is saying something that they certainly aren't saying because they're not even there and this video doesn't exist, causing potentially detrimental effects um, for the political environment. But, you know, this goes far beyond that. That is a technology that really changes how we understand reality to be, right? Because we believe that what we see and what we hear is still somewhat true, or at least we'd like to think so. Unfortunately, artificial intelligence can change that. And even if initially that technology was meant for something very specific, it doesn't mean that it can't be applied for a multitude of rather dangerous um, use cases. So one thing a lot of companies have done a couple of years ago is to found a group called Partnership on AI. So the Partnership on AI is basically an industry organization that has a couple of tenants where they're saying, we are committing ourselves to holding ourselves to really high standards and trying to the best of our abilities not to do evil with the AI systems we develop and we deploy. The other thing that I want to touch on is more company specific efforts. So I think in the very beginning, someone mentioned about benefits of AI being distributed equally. There is a company called OpenAI, which is also the one that um, developed GPT-2 and GPT-3 now. And they've put something up that they call windfall clause. So they've actually gone a step further and said, we are legally committing ourselves to spending a lot of the money we might get if AI becomes an even more capable technology. And if we become the company that you know, owns this technology or has a hold of that technology in the beginning to share that money with society. So in the case of a windfall, there will be some form of distribution, which is really the first of its case. No other company has, I would like to say, even considered that. Um, and obviously you have a lot of companies that have set up AI ethics boards um, or advisory groups for AI ethics, which has gone sometimes better, sometimes worse. Um, the Google AI ethics board disintegrated over some concerns as to the members of the ethics board. And unfortunately, very recently um, with Dr. Gibro's um, forceful push out of Google, the AI ethics team as well is under a lot of strain and um, a lot of internal damage and outside damage, I believe, has been done to the image that Google is trying to push for AI ethics. So beyond that, you have it on the sort of researcher level where you say, well, it's not only an institutional effort if you are an AI organization, but it's also down to the actual researcher that is developing this AI system. And that is suggesting, you know, the company should push for this to be deployed. So you have efforts at code of conduct or charters. You have people that would advocate for whistleblower avenues. So if you find something wrong with the algorithm and you feel that you can't speak to someone in your team or in the company, there should be an avenue to make people aware of this and to make sure that this AI system either doesn't get deployed or if possible gets fixed. You have ideas of verifiable data audits. So um, that would be sort of blockchain based data audits where you can see 
who accessed the data for the AI system? When did they access that? Um, and why did they access that? So that's really important for sort of later stages where we look at responsibility with regards to AI ethics, which are associated to something possibly going wrong with AI systems. And you know, you want to track down what went wrong and what happened. So it's really important to have things such as verifiable data audits or impact assessments or impact statements, thinking through what is going to happen to the best of one's ability. Then there's a couple of efforts at academic level. They oftentimes, you know, they match or overlap with efforts at industry level because of course there's a lot of um, researchers that have one foot in both. Um, so the efforts at academic levels are again, uh, people that look at codes of conduct that obviously research this space. So there's a lot of new research centers that are being funded looking specifically at AI ethics. And you have two big associations called Ellie's and Claire, which are the research groups that look at artificial intelligence, its governance ethics and associated impact in Europe. Then moving towards a more abstract level, you have a lot of efforts at international level. So you have something called the OECD AI principles, which were broadly similar to the principles I've mentioned in the very beginning. So you still have those cluster areas, but it basically had all of the member states of the OECD and a handful of other countries agree to ensuring that AI systems should, amongst other things, benefit people, be in adherence with democratic values and diversities, be transparent and you know, safe, secure, and that there is responsible disclosure of you know, what's going on with these AI system and what is going to happen in the future. So you have these principles also at international level. You also have the Global Panel on AI, so GPI, um, which used to be a French-Canadian initiative where a lot of different countries now have sent their independent experts to work together in groups at supranational level on responsible artificial intelligence, on data governance. Of course, on the future of work, that's another area where artificial intelligence might not have a direct impact, but its impact will be seen and it might not be very positive. And on working groups such as innovation and commercialization. So beyond that, you of course also have standardization efforts. So there's a lot of standards um, on trustworthy AI right now being developed at the ISO and the IEEE has been really involved in these discussions. And then finally, I want to take a step back and look at efforts at national level. Um, so you have ethics guidelines, almost every single country has developed some form of ethics guidelines, some form of ethics charters through usually very long multi-stakeholder processes and working groups. So these are usually very comprehensive statements of intent as to what that country wants its AI governance to be like. And then you have certification and regulation efforts, which I assume I will get to speak a bit more in the Q&A. Wrapping up, just to give you an idea of what's happening in the UK specifically, you've had a lot of new AI strategies and new departments and working groups coming up in the past couple of years. So you have um, the Office for AI, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, the UK AI Council, and then a really 
quite vast and impressive amount of other institutions that are part of this ecosystem, the Alan Turing, of course, being one of them, the NHSX, um, the All Party Parliamentary Group on AI, and the Digital Catapult, for example, if you want to look at um, innovation and funding. So final word here, that all sounds really good. And like, maybe it isn't really, really, really hard what I've said. But let me go back to the start where I said it is really, really hard. All of this is still very much high level discussion. So it is not only really difficult to conclusively define what human values are and what values we should embed AI systems with or the problem of value alignment in AI systems, it's also really difficult to narrow down from high level concepts of we want AI systems to benefit society, concrete policy action, and that might be funding, that might be standards, that might be regulation, that might be any form of framework. It's also difficult to implement these things, even if we have them, because the mechanisms, as I've said before, there's a lot of different actors involved. The mechanisms might be multifold. There might be technical mechanisms, there might be legal mechanisms. So there's a lot of different angles, even to the implementation aspect. Finally, there's a pacing gap. If you look at the different actors that are part of AI governance, industry does have an advantage because they are the first ones to develop it. Governments have to see the system first and then catch up with the things that go wrong. So they will be usually a bit behind in their efforts of governing the technology that is being put out on the market. And that is a big discussion right now in terms of regulating artificial intelligence and you know, how that can be made more agile for governments. Finally, this is still a predominantly Western dialogue. So if we speak about values, if we speak about how AI systems or ethics should be, we as a society possibly need to make a more inclusionary effort at highlighting voices that aren't usually or currently as highlighted in these dialogues because artificial intelligence doesn't stop at borders. So having said that, I'm really, really looking forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Wow, that was brilliant. Um, thank you so much, Dieter and Charlotte, for your talks, presentations, really fabulous. Um, just to remind the audience, feel free to put some questions in the chat for the Q&A session after our discussion. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts and your questions for the speakers. Um, so, I will jump in now to start with my own question. Um, I really, they were just absolutely brilliant presentations. And, and I was particularly taken by the fact that you, you both discussed human relationships with AI, but in very different ways. So both creatively and more practically. And I think two, I was thinking two main things from this, I guess, firstly, I think this really shows how massive this thing that we're calling AI is, how this huge, it's moving and it's not one thing and it encapsulates all these different ways of thinking about big data, machine learning, modeling, all these different things which wrap into it, how creatively we can use AI, how we think about it in the abstract, how do we need to regulate it, how do we govern it, it's just this massive, really interesting thing to interrogate when we're thinking about AI ethics. And so based on that, um, I wonder, and this is a massive question, um, 
But I wonder, how do you both think, coming from your different viewpoints, how do you think that AI should shape society globally? And now it's a massive question, so approach it however, however you see fit. I just, I just also wanted to thank Charlotte for her presentation. It was brilliant. I don't know what to say now. And uh, uh, I, I just uh, like very much how you highlighted uh, the, the ubiquity of uh, artificial intelligence and also the way how it changes the, um, how we perceive the reality actually. And, uh, you know, this change is massive. And if we are thinking about how uh, uh, artificial intelligence should, should shape our future world, um, frankly, I do not know how uh, to answer this massive question. Because, of course, we have uh, uh, some kind of ethical issues. We know how we would like uh, the world to be but how to do it on on what level where to start if it's uh, on um, on a level of nations or individuals or institutions or big tech um, companies um, where to start but uh, i would like to uh, ask charlotte because if someone has the answer it's her <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> well, I don't have the answer. Well, I do have the answer. My answer is very simple, but it's not going to be helpful. I want artificial intelligence to shape the future for good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a techno optimist, which oftentimes I forget because of the topics I work on. But ideally, there is a flip side to all the bad sides of AI, right? Like, ideally, it can do a lot of good and it can you know, people speak about um, artificial intelligence supporting the achievement of the sustainable development goals. So lowering electricity consumption. Now, flip side is a lot of AI experiments also consume a lot of compute and electricity and that, you know, there's a lot of trade-offs that I think we as a society need to be aware of and take the right decisions to the degree that we can at this, at this point, right? Um, so that's why I've previously um, mentioned, you know, we need to make choices what AI systems to fund. That is actually a really big choice if you think about these more environmental trade-offs as well um, and societal trade-offs um, too. So I think particularly in healthcare or science research, AI can amplify researchers' capability and that in turn can hopefully, in my techno-optimist view, make us live longer, healthier lives. But, but we need to do so in you know, a responsible manner. I think that's really where the crooks and the sticky points lie. So that is why it's difficult to say entirely, this is what we should do and let's just gun for it. But ideally, AI is a massively capable technology and it, society would benefit greatly if we developed it responsibly. That's very refreshing uh, to hear that from you because I think in, in my own work, I often fall into the trap of being a bit of a techno pessimist where I'm looking at diversity and inclusion and the worrying figures in the AI workforce um, as well as bias in AI. So um, 
very promising to, <laughs> to hear that. And and something that struck me when when we're all been talk when we've all been talking, we're using this we a lot. And I wondered, what do you who do you both see as this we? Which actors should be involved in AI ethics? Which actors should be leading leading the charge on, on shaping AI ethics and how we see it and how we implement it? Yeah, um, again, the easiest and hardest answer would be everyone because it affects everyone, I think. That's, that's the real issue, right? Usually you want the people that are affected to be involved. And again, if AI is so applicable everywhere, um, that you know, broadens the circle of who should be involved, at least to some degree. So um, actually in a recent paper that I wrote on making AI principles more actionable, I argued for something called um, landscape assessment, sort of like intermittent stakeholder involvement, because oftentimes when these AI ethics principles were developed, you had an expert group and maybe you had one opportunity to give feedback to that expert group as, you know, a citizen, civil society, NGO, researcher, everyone is not part of the expert group, basically, right? But what you really want is to not put the burden of knowing what information those groups need to know on the people who can't know because they're trying to provide information from the outside. But what you want is a sort of agile process where something is created, you solicit feedback, and you have this you know, development of the AI ethics principles or the sort of broader concept areas very much in connection with all of these actors. And as I said before, AI governance as well, it, it can't be just one actor. And, and if it is just one actor, if it is just industry, if it is just academia, if it is just civil society, if it is just governments, that's going to create a really unfortunate disbalance in you know, actually addressing the things that need to be addressed and also in having the knowledge that people need to have to even find out what needs to be done, right? There's often a lack of understanding how some groups of society might be affected or a lack of understanding policymakers what the AI systems capabilities even are potentially. Dieter, do you have um, thoughts? Thoughts, not, not answers, but thoughts. I asked myself this question, who are we? You know, and naturally we, we would say humans, but uh, we know very well that uh, if we are talking about uh, uh, people who should decide something, we want people who uh, think the same way as we do. It's only natural. And I would just um, make a brief remark that we, in this case, doesn't mean uh, uh, only humans, actually. It can be, um, let's say, active intelligent agents of any kind. And uh, if we speak about these non-human agencies, it's not only robots, you know, it's not only, not only androids who pass, who pass during tests uh, and so on, but uh, for example, animals. You know, another inhabitants of uh, on of this planet, uh, who also should have some kind of rights and some kind of a possibility uh, to make a kind of decision, be part of it. And uh, of course, uh, I, I think the best solution would be if we is uh, you know 
everyone and we live uh, happy and in harmony, but uh, this is really only some vector of some kind of desire. And uh, I'm not sure we can operate uh, with this um, with this desire as uh, something real. Yeah, it's interesting because when we're talking about AI systems, particularly in the public sector, we're talking about decision-making systems, right? So I think that we can often fall into the trap of thinking that just we, the humans, are the ones making the decisions about the technology and how it should be designed, when in fact that's definitely not the case for AI because they are the ones making the decisions, learning from what we have decided is good and bad as a society, and then amplifying those decisions and in fact having more impacts than human decisions alone. Um, I'm going to change change the track slightly. Um, I, I love how we're discussing AI, but I'm very aware that that's different to how AI is often discussed in the media and in kind of public consciousness. We often see AI, particularly in books and movies, when we think about AI as being this super intelligence, you know, reaching the singularity. Um, in other words, moving from what we've been discussing a lot, which I kind of think of as being narrow AI. So um, certain things which AI, certain decisions which AI is making, moving from that to what we call more generalized AI, where AI can make the decisions for itself on what decisions it's going to make. And so I wonder, uh, do you think that as a society, in order to make these decisions about AI ethics, do you think that we're sometimes in a way blinded by these ideas of this, this fantastic super intelligence and overlook the real problems of AI ethics that we're seeing now coming to fruition in everyday life? So for example, surveillance or privacy issues or data collection when we don't know that our data is being collected and so on and so forth. If I can, share my thoughts, uh, I think definitely, uh, or it's in my opinion, uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's so exciting to think and talk about things like super intelligence and uh, singularity, and it's much more sexy than talking about policy and regulation. And um, um, I think uh, the, the important thing is that we should still somehow understand what's going on. We can have these, you know, huge concepts, these, these hyper objects of thought and so on and so on. And, and okay, maybe uh, there is some kind of cognition that exceeds the human dimension, human uh, consciousness, actually. So, uh, but at the same time, we have to be uh, aware of the, of of glorification of a technology. It seems that uh, sometimes more opaque is better. We fit our hypothesis to the output data we don't understand uh, because machine knows it better. It's, you know, it computes so fast and so on. So uh, there's, for example, a thing that Shoshana Zubov is describing is, uh, and she calls it division of learning. And uh, she, uh, um, I think she, uh, describe the situation we should be aware of 
where only uh, the technological elite can uh, can understand what's going on that have this uh, access to deep learning and the rest of the people is just uh, some kind of raw material for extracting behavioral and cognitive data to predict and to shape the future. Charlotte, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on this as well? I know it's slightly, slightly. Um, well, I think, of course, film, books, they do, they do very much shape public understanding. I, I would say that a lot of times the more mainstream media or journalists aren't a lot more helpful either in using certain depictions of robots or AI systems or um, having quite hypey headlines that don't really do justice to what is actually being discussed on a more scientific level. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of things coming together there. At the same time, I do think a lot of people that have or that are working in this space or that have gone into this space have done so because they've been inspired by these quite fantastical futures at times. So maybe the culture novels is one where not everything goes bad. So it's possibly a more techno-optimist one. But I think what a lot of these books or films have done is really give the public an idea that there is a simple answer to addressing some of the issues with this technology, which as we've seen, there is not. And there is certainly some felt form of fragmentation within a community where some people are more focused on longer term effects of AI systems and others more focused on short term effects. Now, ideally, I think, and actually I have also written a paper about this, um, you would find something like an incompletely theorized agreement between those groups, right? Because there are overarching goals. It might sound sort of really high level, but there are overarching goals both of these groups are trying to pursue. And I think if the community is already falling apart now, or if people are already now worried about very drastically different things, again, given that AI systems can have so many drawbacks. Um, that is probably not good for the future where we need focused effort on actually ensuring that all of these areas are addressed that need to be addressed right now. I think it's really interesting because it's an area where the kind of practical, the practical and the abstract sides of AI, if you can say that, come together in how we often anthropomorphize AI. So I'm thinking particularly of, um, so I, I work a lot, I, I look at feminist AI a lot and how we could create feminist AI and feminist robots. And thinking about, how, I mean, one very small example is the female gendering of um, virtual assistants and voice assistants, such as Alexa, such as Siri, it's kind of the default. Um, and this leads me to, to think about or to discuss with you um, what you think about AI bias and how to negate it. So um, in my research project, we in a paper we just published recently, we look at how the lack of diversity and inclusion in the AI sector has a massive effect on how the AI industry and academia and the public sector view and shape AI ethics. So particularly how that the lack of diversity feeds into this feedback loop of bias in AI systems. 
And this can, of course, also come from various data biases, both inclusion and exclusion in data sets, um, via regulation, which does and does not exist, different standards. Uh, there's a huge amount of waste. So I, I just wonder, how do you both think are some of the best ways that we can begin to negate biases in AI, whether that's socially, whether that's technically or, or any other way? It's very hard in the case of a neural network like GPT-2 or GPT-3 because they use this huge amount of data from online environment actually and then they unsupervised. So they learn from this data and they are including these biases. And if we as humans do not teach them what is bias and uh, what, what's right, uh, they cannot know, of course. And uh, uh, of course there are new technologies and uh, there is a work with data sets and so on, so on. But maybe from my you know, experiment and, and artistic point of view, maybe we should make them, I don't know, watch the movies, you know, uh, watch the stories like, like human children. We have to teach them what's right and what's wrong because when they see it, it's ugly when it's wrong and everyone's crying and when it's, when it's, when it's beautiful and right and good, you're happy. So maybe we should try some kind of this education of uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's a difficult question, Erin. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I'm hitting you all the massive, massive questions. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, I mean, I think, first of all, we humans are pretty bad at judging bias or like think, I mean, thinking back just like 50 years or even, even just a hundred years, our value system of what we think right and wrong and like what is biased or discriminatory or isn't. And even globally now still is so different <laughs> to what some of us in society think right now is, you know, the pinnacle of equality and how, you know, people should behave and how we should be equal. And possibly 10, 20 years down the line, we're going to face similar issues, right? What goes to say that we now have figured out all of the you know bias uh, discriminatory issues and you know we're just right now having said that of course there's um you know in discourse there are methods like you mentioned you know, of course having more diverse teams working on this being able to flag issues saying why are we even doing this this is obviously not okay and i know this because i'm an affected person you know you wouldn't realize this otherwise something like that having this diversity having this inclusion within the process of course some form of can we you know de-bias data sets can we ensure that historic bias doesn't seep in can we ensure it doesn't seep in by proxy so can we even if we think we've de-biased the data sets does the algorithm identify something that you know actually leads back to the very same thing by proxy. Um, and then of course, there are also other forms of bias, which are, as you said, um, possibly tackled by having more diverse teams like representation, the data set, having, um, you know, complete data sets, ensuring that the data sets actually match the data the system will encounter when it actually really is deployed in reality, because oftentimes that's not the case either. And it's not even historic 
you know, bias, but it's just that the system was developed or trained on certain data sets that don't match the reality of what the system is going to encounter and therefore it's going to mal malfunction. So my answer is, or my suggestion would be, there's a lot of different biases and, you know, angles um, which you can take to prod the problem, but we should also be aware that we are part of the problem. Us prodding the problem, you know, is also something we should take with a grain of salt. And, you know, are we 100% correct now? And how can we ensure that it's, you know, such that in the future, people can still amend those systems accordingly? Absolutely. Um, now, I feel that I've hogged you both too much with my own questions. So thank you so much for answering those. Um, so I think it's time to move to some of the audience q and if that's okay. I've been having a look and we've got some really, really interesting questions coming in. Um, so both and Andres G and Andreas D both asked um, fairly similar questions. So if you don't mind, I'm going to lump them together. They are asking about essentially what can the public do? So we've been talking a lot about uh, people working in AI already in some form or researching AI. Um, but what about community involvement, people who don't uh, work in AI or, or know AI intricately, how can the community influence and, and shape AI ethics? And I think this kind of comes back to this discussion around which humans are in the loop. Um, but how can we, when the big tech companies are holding this proprietary technology, proprietary AI, often proprietary data sets, we don't know what data is being used, we don't know how the models are being built, um, a lot of this is happening behind a massive wall. How can we educate the public and policymakers um, about AI ethics? And how can we ensure that they are also playing a role um, in how we're shaping it? Another massive question. <laughs> and important, of course. So we have to speak about transparency, we have to speak about the possibility of action of everyone and, and of course of uh, ethical behavior of, of humans themselves, you know, we have to start with humans uh, before proceeding to artificial intelligence. But speaking about big companies and uh, their um, influence on global population, uh, there's the question what an individual can do is really tough, it's difficult because um, uh, I would say nothing and I hope that's not true. Um, yes, I also hope that's not true. Um, I mean, I think, again, there's a couple of different answers to that. One way would be to go at it from a economic sort of perspective and say the sort of systems that consumers don't buy or abandon like Facebook exodus happened at some point I think those are the systems where the tech companies are going to get the message now that's it could work it's also quite idealistic because you're cutting your own access off to potentially certain systems you need to have access to and you want to stay in touch with your friends and you know who holds the longer end of the sick like who actually has the power here but i would say if there are organized you know 
groups and lobbying groups from consumer side, from civil society side, that oftentimes works and oftentimes works also in the UK um, where, you know, the public questions a certain use of their data and, you know, that can be put in front of a court and that can, you know, be put towards the media and there can be investigation to follow and, you know, it can be banned. So that is possible, but you have to consider the individual, um, you know, how much is the individual impacted in going on this crusade. So that's, that's one thing to consider, but that is possible in principle and it does happen then you usually um, have some form of, you know, meetups and civil society groups that you can get involved in to just learn more about the topic if it does really interest you. Um, in the EU, there's something called AI Alliance, which is a really open big platform where I think they have like five, 6,000 people now subscribing to it, where there's events and people can publish their opinions and engage with experts. So something such as this, um, that would be, my sort of one answer. Um, then you have for policymakers, which is a different question, of course, how can you educate policymakers? And you would hope that there are internal trainings. You would hope that they do reach out to experts as and when needed. And you also have a course called Elements of AI, which basically is a high level crash course on AI in and of itself. It doesn't entirely concern ethics, but I do think it's also valuable to have some understanding of what can this magical, mysterious AI actually do? What is it? And to ha have a better hold, right? Because a lot of power is being kept by actors because people might think this is too confusing to them or it, it's too scientific or too technical for them to understand and even engage. And I think that's a barrier that really needs to be broken down because first of all, Yes, of course, if you go deep into it and if you actually develop it, for sure, it's its own science, right? But that doesn't mean that no one that, you know, should engage with it if they don't have a PhD in machine learning or something. So I think that's a barrier that definitely can and should be broken down more actively. So yeah, for sure, we, we should educate ourselves and our children. And also maybe uh, we should uh, elaborate and develop some kind of uh, AIs, you know, able to communicate with people and uh, educate them. So uh, to make another um, environment where human and inhuman communicate uh, for that the humans are not scared of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence can uh, benefit from, uh, I don't know, the. Um, the ethical behavior it can learn from humans. Something I also found quite heartening, um, oftentimes in the tech companies, even the technical work is divorced from this ethics work. And when I was at Stanford, I uh, noticed that they're now integrating uh, ethics modules into computer science curricula. So I think it's quite heartening that, that it's becoming at least in some cases, kind of part and parcel of this technical work that's happening around AI systems. Um, so, oh, we've got lots of really brilliant questions. Um, so I'll, I'll read this one from Gerhard Koenig because I think it's um, put fabulously. Um, so they say liability is usually connected with the capability to foresee the effect of one's actions. But when creating complex, multi-layered AI models, it is basically impossible to predict all outcomes and small changes due to new data might have large effects. 
So in how far is the ethical problem of AI also tied to the epistemological problem of understanding the AI system? Another small question <laughs> for you both. Yeah. Deeply, of course, it, it's, uh, it's a very complexity and we live in a complex world, but uh, as we are trying to understand the complex natural world, we can uh, uh, the similar way uh, understand the world of AI, although we all know that neural networks are not transparent. They are learning and they are changing themselves, they are modifying themselves and uh, with, uh, with this uh, rule, um, small changes and um, um, uh, big um, influence on, on a system, uh, it's really uh, hard to, uh, we, I think we have to develop a new sense of understanding. Uh, some, maybe some kind of new intuition, uh, which can um, 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 allow us to uh, understand the situations that are uh, beyond our present uh, understanding, beyond our, our uh, epistemological possibilities of today, because maybe the world is changing so quickly that really we have to be uh, so dynamic that we have to understand something we don't have uh, tools for understand yet. Yeah, I mean, so I think, unfortunately, a lot of ethical questions, well, there is ethical issues that are related to us not understanding the AI system or the AI system behaving in ways that we didn't expect it to at all. Um, and then there's a lot of ethical issues that we really should have seen coming and they're just because we've misapplied, misused the AI system. And it is actually quite clear in a very simple AI system that this has gone wrong. So. I think even if you sift out ethical issues, yes, for, for sure, it is difficult at times to understand how an AI system behaves. It also depends what you mean by understand it. You know, who, who needs to understand it? To what degree do you need to understand it? Um, distributional shift, if it has been developed for a certain area or a certain sector, and then it's, you know, it encounters something it hasn't happened before. That is ideally something you, would have tested under you know safety security measures before but it can always happen so there's three different bits one where you say well ethical issues exist irregardless of whether it's an understandable ai system or not and ideally the first one the case where we understand the ai system we understand what went wrong should be eliminated pretty soon in terms of ethical issues i expect it will not be so that still is a big issue right then you have the how does an AI system, can we even know how it will behave under every given circumstance it can ever encounter? That's really difficult, which is one of the problems I think particularly AI safety researchers are working on a lot right now, because that would mean you have an entire model of the environment wherein this AI system can ever be used, and that is close to impossible. So yes, that is a very difficult question. However, most AI systems are still currently deployed in spaces where they're not going to jump, they're narrow, right? They're not going to jump from being applied in one space to being applied in a different space. It's usually just broad application areas within the same space. Um, and then the third question is understanding of the AI system for legal liability. 
understanding of the AI system for why, you know, why was it developed that way? Who made those decisions? What were the human decisions made in that? What did the researchers think? Understanding the AI systems in terms of this data is being given more weight here, there, there, there. That's why it made this decision. If I have this data, it would have made this other decision. Like, I think there's also, even with understanding and who needs to understand that, there are a lot of different levels, right? Does a layperson need to understand why the AI system did something? Possibly, but they probably just need to understand if you had said X on question three, it would have given you a different output. Does that amount to understanding? It, it, it's all of this, there's actually a lot of different elements tied up in your question, which is really interesting and they're all very, very difficult. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so I, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um, so we've already discussed this a little bit um, with respect to gender, but I really like uh, Eva Turner's question because it brings into it brings in more uh, intersectional issues. So um, they ask, how can issues like gender, race, disability, human rights, as well as other issues of privacy and so on? be taught to every level and automatically included in the thinking of those who create the system. Um, and then they add, how about actual societies like BCS or IEEE stipulating that gender to start with um, must be taken into account in every project? So maybe to answer the first question or to have like a little stab at it. Um when I worked as coordinator for the high-level expert group, we actually also had um, in our ethics guidelines and in the final assessment, there's a consideration for universal design and accessibility. So that goes beyond sort of like gender questions, but is it even accessible to all of society? Can, you know, our universal design principles implemented such that everyone can use this AI system? And I think that, yes, that should be possibly part of the starting, you know, um, starting point for developing an AI system to ensure that everyone who needs to access it, everyone who's affected by it, everyone who will encounter it has been taken into consideration. And that will be questions of, you know, um, disabilities, that will be questions of gender, that will be socioeconomic questions potentially. So that is definitely something that needs to be considered at the very start and then ideally tested once you have developed the system and tested broadly that it truly adheres to those standards. I just agree. <laughs> um, and then we have a really interesting final question from Lucy who are, should international organizations such as the UN play a big role in AI governance or are they unable to keep up with the private sector and governments? Really interesting question. Um, I feel like that's a question for me potentially. Um, yes, they should. However, it shouldn't be doing things just for the sake of doing things. Um, and I think there is a lot of busy work that is currently happening in the space of AI governance because we've sort of reached the point where we broadly know what needs to be done. We broadly have the principles, we broadly know the ethical issues, 
But as I said before, it's a really, really hard problem to figure out what to do next, how to do it, and which actors should collaborate. How broad does it need to be on, you know, should every country be involved in this globally? Should it be like-minded countries? Should it be just one country and then they're, you know, speaking to other countries? So these questions, should the UN be looking at this? Yes, but within what is meaningful and actually useful to move the topic forward and not to engage. And that doesn't just go for the UN, that goes for, you know, every group that is involved in AI governance, also for industry, not just to engage in these discussions, to perpetuate the discussions, but to actually come up with concrete frameworks and you know, methods on what to do now. And that's the hard bit. And I would invite everyone and you know, their friends and dog and whatnot and the UN to go ahead and do this if they can, if it's something meaningful for them to do. Yeah, I have to admit that these um, things related to organization are probably more important than, uh, you know, abstract thinking and uh, artistic experimentation and even epistemological issues, because to organize it the way uh, for it's working for everyone and it's a fair system and so on, it's... Uh, uh, I cannot imagine the, the amount of effort you would need to do such a thing. I think it's interesting how these different aspects all come together to build this thing that we call AI, right? It's it's super interesting. Um, I lied, I said that was the final question. We've had one more come in, which I think we just about have time for. Um, so Andra says the legal aspects are really interesting. If we deal with humans, there could be cases where the individual was compass mentis. Will or could we have something when post-evaluating models? Um, and I know there is a lot of really interesting work being being done around this. I wonder, I wonder what you two think. It's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I understand the question. Is the question if the AI system has full like control of its yes, mind? Yes, so I, I think, I think, well, the way I understand it is it, when we are thinking about the decisions that AI has made, do we have that same, legally, do we have the same idea of compass mentis of, you know, being in their right mind? to make a certain decision because we have that individual. I, that's what I understand the question as, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, that would assume that we put an AI system on the same par as a human being, right? Okay, well, that's an entirely different question, <laughs> if, if that is the question, assuming that's the question. Um, if you assume that an AI system can have full capacity on its own mind, um, be in whatever state when it made that decision, then you are, attributing not only human um, capabilities and the human state on the AI system, but if you do do that, you also give the AI system rights, right? Like you do say that that is something that is equal in some shape or form to a human being. So that's a very difficult road to go down on because then, you know, it becomes a moral patient. It, it becomes a thing that has, you know, decision-making power that has potentially its own ethics that has some standing potentially legally in society from what I get from this question. And 
I can certainly say we're not there yet. Um, once we get there, if we get there, that will be, I mean, that will truly change society if that should ever be the case. And then you get into questions of consciousness, which, yeah, um, that that is certainly a very um, future-oriented topic. And that would require, you know, some, some level on uh, where where humans and artificial system uh, could explain their behavior and then uh, have reaction and have this discussion and uh, new rules of, again, what's right and what's wrong should be set. So I think that would require a, a whole, or maybe, maybe not a whole new ethics, but at least some uh, some modifications because uh, you would have a new uh, intelligent adaptive agent with its with its own um, you know system of decisions and uh, who 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 will be the judge human or inhuman so on that uh, very difficult question and very future thinking points. Um, I think we'll wrap up the Q&A. So thank you so much to the audience for the really fabulous and challenging questions. It's definitely given me a lot to think about. Um, and thank you so, so much to our speakers, Charlotte and Dita. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you. Um, and now I think I'll hand back to Prem for the last couple of minutes to sum up the event. So thank you both so much. Get, uh, well, well, uh, let me get the camera. Well, it is, uh, I would really like wholeheartedly uh, thank you for this wonderful and uh, inspirational thoughts provoking uh, looking at the watch, 90 minutes uh, discussion. I think this really leaves us, uh, at least myself, with even more uh, questions than uh, I had before the evening, but I, I guess that was the, the objective uh, of, the, of the evening. But it also gave us a ground and opportunity to continue uh, these discussions. So on this note, I would uh, like to invite you and ask you to mark your calendar for the second AI Science Cafe series, which will be on May 12th with the topic AI and arts. And it will be chaired by a curator of digital art, Melanie Lenz uh, from the VNA Museum. So as a final note, uh, so thank you again to the Austrian Culture Forum and the Czech Center for organizing the first AI Science Cafe series. And also thank you for the participants, the audience, uh, and hope to see you in life, uh, hopefully soon. And uh, wishing you have a wonderful, lovely evening. Thank you. Thank you, Prem. Thank you all for joining us and see you all again at our next Science Cafe. Thank you. Bye-bye.